Hello, microbe friends. I'm Dr. Justine Dees, and welcome to the Joyful Microbe Podcast. It's the show all about the microbes we encounter in our daily lives. Thank you so much for tuning in. I can't wait to share this show with you. In this episode, we'll dive into the captivating world of algae and biotechnology with Dr. Kyle Lowerson. He is an assistant professor at King Abdullah University of Science and Technology in Thule, Saudi Arabia, and leads a research group focusing on engineering algae for useful purposes. We cover everything from the basics of algae and their role in nature to their potential to drive sustainability. These tiny yet powerful organisms hold incredible secrets. Discover how metabolic engineering has turned algae into cellular factories, producing useful chemicals and cleaning wastewater. Join us as we explore the challenges and gaps in algae cultivation technology and learn how to observe algae under a microscope in an exciting at-home activity. Get ready to be inspired and amazed by the power of algae. Hi, Kyle. Thanks so much for coming on the Joyful Microbe podcast. Yeah, thanks for so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Okay, so we are going to talk about algae today. And it's something that's very present in our world and often overlooked. So I'm excited to chat about that with you today. But let's first start off with the basics. What exactly are algae? And can you explain the difference between micro and macro algae for us? Absolutely. Um, I think we should start one step below microalgae, though, if we're going to talk about micro and macroalgae. We should probably talk a little bit about cyanobacteria, which were the first organisms that started doing photosynthesis and producing oxygen at the same time. And so this capacity to take light into a cell was a pretty nifty evolutionary trait. It happened before organisms were able to make oxygen at the same time. And the evolution that was needed to capture photons and turn them into energy equated to basically having a nuclear reactor inside your cell. You could make as much free energy as you wanted. But what happened with cyanobacteria is that they started evolving oxygen while they were doing photosynthesis. And that meant that they started outcompeting the things around them because oxygen was like a poison to the anaerobic microbes that were around at the time. And so cyanobacteria um, evolved, or sorry, not evolved, but spread around the world very quickly, uh, creating what is now known as the great oxygenation event in our geological history or our biogeological history, one would say. So microalgae are flagellated or non-flagellated organisms that at some point managed to take up a cyanobacterium inside their cell through a process called endosymbiosis, where something is taken up but not digested. It's not uh, destroyed and taken apart for parts. It somehow managed to stay alive inside that cell. And so microalgae represent an, uh, what's called primary endosymbiotic event, which 
covers some of the microalgae. And so we can talk about that uh, in a little bit later. But um, usually when we're talking about microalgae, we're talking about single-celled or a few cells in some kind of uh, agglomerate or a slightly multicellular organism or a filamentous organism that is doing photosynthesis and is usually able to swim around or move around in the water column or in soil where it is naturally found, uh, which is different from macroalgae, which are assemblages of photosynthetic cells that grow into much larger structures that we can see that are like the seaweeds that wash up on the shore or the racks, depending on where you live. Um, But the difference with macroalgae to other plants that you might be thinking about is that they're not the same kind of uh, tissues on the inside. So a macroalgae doesn't have vascular tissue like a plant would to move water up and down or nutrients up and down. A macroalgae is more like an assemblage of photosynthetic cells held together uh, in some kind of specialized structures, but not necessarily doing that kind of um, transport of water up and down them like they would in higher plants. So you have this difference between small and big, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of similarities in the actual cell biology that's going on. Now, you started by saying microalgae or algae in general are very diverse organisms, and that's very true. Microalgae are much more diverse than all of the plants that we know in the world uh, on Hmm. land. And that's because not only are there lineages of algae that have evolved from this primary endosymbiosis, but other organisms have subsequently taken in those eukaryotic algae and done secondary endosymbiosis and even tertiary and quaternary endosymbiosis. So when I say tertiary, quaternary, secondary, what I'm saying is that a big organism was able to engulf an alga that was already itself engulfing a cyanobacterium, and those cells survived within that bigger cell. And through evolution, their genomes have melded together to create a new organism. And so algae that we see out in nature are incredibly diverse organisms, most of which are capable of photosynthesis. Some have even lost the ability to do photosynthesis and become things like parasitic organisms that um, exist uh, just off of the resources that they get from whatever host they infect uh, or (laughs) from from heterotrophic growth as uh, non-photosynthetic organisms do. So there's all kind of examples in nature of these different lifestyles that algae have evolved and both macro and microalgae exist in all of these different shapes and forms and they're literally thousands of different types of them. So that's a very long-winded explanation to what are microalgae and what are my macroalgae. <laughs> well, you said a few different things that I want to go back to. Um, first of all, you started with cyanobacteria, and they used to be called blue-green algae, or people still call them blue-green algae, but um, they're actually bacteria. And um, so do you mind kind of explaining what's going on and how that was figured out? Because weren't they initially thought to be algae? I think under a microscope, sorry, just to the naked eye or even to a low resolution microscope, a lot of things that are green, photosynthetic and microbial look very similar. And so it's a pretty natural assumption to just call everything that looks the same, the same, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that because of the unique colors that you see in cyanobacterial mats or algal blooms or cyanobacterial blooms, 
um, they tend to have this blue-green color. And so one could imagine that that's why they got that name, because that's what they look like. It's very rare to see a brown or a purple uh, bloom of cyanobacteria, although they do exist, um, there, there's, or algae, it's, it's very rare to see them. So as they were being characterized, this, this color was pretty much where they got their naming convention. And it's only through mm. detailed um, phycology studies, the actual study of algae under the microscope and looking at them and identifying their cellular structure that people started to tease apart, okay, well, there's something smaller, something bigger, there's something more complicated in its cell structure. Some of them have different lifestyles. Um, and then these names started to evolve and become more uh, professionally delineated. And of course, now that we're able to do genome sequencing of different mm -hmm. organisms, we're starting to see complete redefinitions of phylogeny to be more accurate to what has happened through the course of time as, as genomes evolve and organisms evolve. Yeah, I think that's how it happens with a lot of organisms where they were initially categorized based on <clears throat> how they looked. And then later on, as they learned more, the scientists learned more about the organism, the details of it. And then, you know, finally now today, like looking at the genome sequences, it's like things are getting recategorized all over again. But um, like with slime molds, <laughs> which is something that people may have seen when they're hiking and they're like these yellow blobs on the side of a trail on a log, those those are not actually fungi, but they're, um, they're slime molds and would fall under um, protists. And so that's like a totally, they had to recategorize those. And I think it's kind of funny that that happens a lot in science where you learn more about an organism and then it might have to shift slightly in where it's categorized for sure i mean we i think our generation studied three um kingdoms of life you have bacteria you have archaea and you have eukaryotes right and i understand that in the last two years now we're talking about redefining all eukaryotes as archaea and so it's it, it's a constantly evolving landscape right yeah yeah it's wild um so you also mentioned the great oxygenation event, which I think is a really neat thing to um, attribute to algae. I think it's it's probably something a lot of people don't think about right away, or at least non-scientists. Um, and but it's like the air that we breathe, <laughs> you know, initially came from them, and I think that's just a really neat thing to think about. Yeah, it was the original biological induced climate change, right? Yeah, it's very interesting. And something else you said, um, it made me think about that there's, no matter what, with these organisms, you, you know, you have these weird oddballs that just defy the, the, you know, the terms that we've used to describe them. And so it seems like in every type of organism, there's always an exception to the rule. Um, because you talked about some that don't even do photosynthesis anymore. And it's like, what? So, and I think that's just something to keep in mind that it's like we try to describe things in a simple way and explain algae, do photosynthesis. But the truth is <laughs> there's always the weird ones that will, you know, make these things a little bit harder to explain, um, you know. 
Absolutely. I, we in our lab work with a type of extremophile red algae that is actually blue-green because it's lost the red pigment of uh, that's traditionally characterized in red algae. And the whole group of these organisms that grow in extreme environments are all green. So that's funny because it's a green alga that, or sorry, it's a red alga that looks green. And it's funny, if you break it, it actually makes a blue pigment. So it's a, a super oddball. <laughs> That's amazing. So we talked about that algae produce oxygen, but what, you know, let's just kind of talk about what their basic role in nature is. And it probably varies based on the organism. You said they're a very diverse group of organisms, but can you explain what are they doing besides making oxygen? Well, I think we have to depersonify biology a little bit and, you know, not maybe ask what they're doing, but how have they survived and been so prolific? Because they do what they do because it allows their genes to move forward, right? It's not necessarily that they're doing it to do it. It's just that that's the niche that they found. So, um, photosynthetic microbes and macrobes, so if we talk about uh, macroalgae, are there taking energy from light and using carbon dioxide, the gas that we consider a global issue at the moment because we're producing too much of it, as a carbon source for growth. And they do that pretty efficiently. They convert carbon dioxide into their biomass. So most algae in general, or we generalize and say, 50% of the biomass is made of carbon. But there's also other chemicals like nitrogen, phosphorus, and a lot of other um, atom uh, molecules and atoms in those organisms. And so what algae are really good at doing is taking up nitrogen and phosphorus and other micronutrients from the environment around them and turning it into their biomass. And so they do this with light energy because it's free energy for them or sometimes from eating any organic carbon they can find, depending on the species. And they survive that way. So they survive that way, and they're prolific, and they produce oxygen at the same time. The benefit to all of us who breathe oxygen is that we get oxygen from this process. And so it gives us um, what we need for our respiration. And at the same time, they go on doing their thing in their ecological niche to promote their own um genetic uh presence in the world so they're involved in lots of different nutrient cycles in the world and do a whole lot more than just make the air that or the oxygen that we depend on absolutely we call them primary producers right so they're the first um first resource in most biological food chains because they they are eaten by smaller or uh, large slightly larger small organisms which are then subsequently eaten up the food chain and so they are able to produce the basic biomolecules from relatively inorganic inputs right so carbon dioxide is an inorganic form of carbon uh, nitrogen or phosphorus that they may take up is in an elemental form and not every organism can use it and they're able to take that in and turn it into proteins and oils in their cells, as well as carbohydrates. So all of those things then fuel our food webs. Hmm. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> so how did you get interested in algae and why do you like working with them? 
um, I, I think like most people on your podcast, I'm a bit of a nerd and <laughs> I, I, um, did my undergraduate during my undergraduate, I got to do a lot of field work. So I was out studying, uh, paleolimnology one summer. I was out studying flowers another summer in the field. And in my fourth, uh, summer in my undergrad, I was working in a greenhouse that was taking care of some trees that had been uh, genetically modified. And there I started to learn about molecular biology and genetic engineering of organisms. And I got more and more interested in that science. Uh, but trees as a model system took a very long time to work with. So when you tried to do something, mm. it could take six months to a year to get the result that you were looking for. And as a young scientist, I was very uh, eager to see results and move ahead with my career. And I thought, hey, you know what, I'm going to go to a smaller organism for my master's and start <laughs> working with a different organism. So instead of going, uh, continuing with trees, I started working with grass. And so I started trying to genetically engineer grass. But it was the same problem. It also took three to four months to get results and was not a quick and easy process. So mm. when I was lucky enough to win a scholarship to do my PhD, um, the, the lab that I got the scholarship to work in happened to be an algal lab. And for me, I thought it was a perfect jump into a faster system that could work more efficiently because you can grow it in a flask. It can uh, reproduce in about six to eight hours. So here was the organism that I was going to get some quick re results with. But at the time, what I didn't realize is that it was actually very difficult to genetically engineer uh, microalgae at that time. Mm. And uh, that's what actually got me started down this whole path that has led to the research that we do in our lab now uh, was figuring out and overcoming those limitations in a green microalga that we were working with. Hmm. Well, so why don't you tell us a little bit more about the algae that your group works on? So we work with um, a lot of different species at the moment, but we do two different sort of activities with different groups of species. So um, one of the activities that we do in our group is bioprospecting. So we go out into nature around us and we try and find species by taking soil samples, water samples, basically anything that's around. You can isolate algae if you um, take a wet cotton swab and rub it against a tree and bring it back to the lab. Um, mm -hmm. there's, there's algae literally everywhere. And so mm. we go out to all these different unique environments that we have around our lab here and we try and bring samples back to the lab and then grow what will grow from them and try and isolate them as single individual cultures. That's a story we could get into in a little bit, but to answer your question about what algae, algae we work on specifically, uh, we have two species that have become our workhorses for genetic engineering. And one is Chlamydomonas reinhardii, which is a very big name. It sounds kind of complicated. It's a green alga with two little flagella that are able to swim around. And it has a very simple cell structure. So it has one big chloroplast, it has one nucleus, and then sort of a matrix of mitochondrial around that chloroplast. And it's a very powerful model organism. It's been in the lab in one way or another since the 1940s. And it's a model for things like um, cell movement towards light, for understanding the mechanism of photosynthesis, because it has a very similar photosynthetic structure to higher plants. It's been a model for many different um, 
fields in scientific community and not just about you know light and plants but things like um things like uh, the peroxisome structure and how carbon flows through the cell or things like how microtubules form at the flagella base so it's a really powerful model organism and we do a lot of work in it's what's called metabolic engineering so we take pathways or genes from organisms that may produce something that's very valuable, say an anti-cancer medicine or a specialty pigment. And through a process called synthetic biology or the tools that are called synthetic biology, we're able to redesign those genes so that they work in the alga. And we're able to then produce the same kind of product in that alga instead of going out into nature and harvesting it from a plant, we can now produce it in an alga in a lab from light and carbon dioxide. And so we do a lot of that work with Chlamydomonas. And the other alga that we've started to do a lot of work in is called Cyanidioskyzon merole. And this is that fun red alga that we talked about that produces a blue pigment and is actually green in appearance. So Cyanidioskyzon is a member of the Cyanidiophyceae, which are organisms that are generally isolated around acidic hot springs. So you can find them in Yellowstone mm. Park, you can find them in Naples, Italy, in the Phlegrean fields. They're isolated from many different places in the world, but they uh, really like living in environments with low pH and high temperatures. So this alga specifically grows very well at 42 degrees, which is a little bit so that's Celsius. I'm sorry, you're going to have to translate to Fahrenheit for your listeners. Um, that's okay. <laughs> uh, so 42 degrees, it's about four degrees Celsius above or five degrees Celsius above body temperature. So maybe 102, mm. 103 Fahrenheit. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, and it grows at 42 degrees, but also in very acidic conditions. So it likes pH two, which is about the same pH as lemon juice or Coca-Cola. And you know that your tooth will dissolve if you leave it in Coca-Cola for too long. So it's the same <laughs> with the culture medium. So these algae grow in a very extreme environment. And what we've found is that we can actually also do the same sort of metabolic engineering in them. But because of their extreme conditions, almost nothing else can grow in their bio, in their cultivation vessels. So they're, they're a little bit cleaner to work with and we can scale them up uh, outdoors without worrying about other organisms getting in and contaminating our processes. Hmm. Okay. You said a few things that I want to circle back to. Um, first of all, about doing medical metabolic engineering. <clears throat> um, and you kind of mentioned that you'll take this pathway from another organism, put it into the algae. And a lot of people might think, well, why would you do that? And to you, it's obvious, but I kind of wanted to emphasize the point here because it's so cool that um, putting it in an algae makes it so that it's basically a free process and it's a lot simpler. So you're not having to provide anything but light and CO2 for them to produce these useful compounds for us. Is that right? Am I understanding that correctly? That's 100% correct. So the idea is that all organisms in the world share some kind of commonalities in our metabolism. So, you know, at, at our core, there are things that are shared across everything. And when you look at an organism that produces a specialty chemical, like a plant producing an anti-cancer drug, 
that anti-cancer drug we've learned over the last 20 years of very hard work from a lot of dedicated scientists that the pathway from the common intermediate that everything has to that specialty compound is modular. And what that means is that there's probably one or two or even up to 12 genes that make enzymes that cause a chemical reaction that will then stepwise make that product in that cell. And once you know that, you can take that pathway and drop it with a lot of hard work and dedication. You can drop it effectively like Lego bricks into another mm -hmm. organism to get that same product from that intermediate that that organism makes. And that's what we do with the algae. So um, a prime example is the anti-cancer drug Paclitexel. It's highly used um, in, in pharmaceutical industry. It its precursor is a 20-carbon compound that comes from one enzymatic step from the same 20-carbon compound that's used to make all of the pigments of the cell that's doing photosynthesis. So um, the pigments like the orange color that you would see in carrots, those are inside most photosynthetic cells, and they're part of the photosystem, photosystem complex that allows light to be captured by the cell. Just like the green color of plants, one part of that green color is from that same pathway. And so that precursor that makes those chemicals that go to become part of the photosynthesis of all algae and plants, if you add one enzyme into that sort of cellular environment where that precursor is, you could start making this 20-carbon cancer anti-cancer molecule, or at least the precursor for it, in the same cell while it's doing photosynthesis. <laughs> I think it's pretty amazing. Um, okay, I want to come back to that. But first, another thing that you mentioned with the second organism that you talked about, can you say the name again for us? Cyanidioskyzon marole. Okay, and so that one lives in a pretty extreme environment. It can be isolated from extreme environments. But on a previous podcast episode, I talked to Dr. Adrienne Kish, an extremophile researcher, and she explained the difference between extremophiles and extremotolerant organisms and that an extremophile requires those extreme conditions, whereas extremotolerant can survive in those conditions and grow well, but doesn't necessarily, it won't kill it to be in like normal conditions or normal to us, of course, because it's all about looking at it from a human perspective that we've come up with these terms. Um, so that organism, is it, would, would it be classified as ex extremotolerant or as an extremophile? You know, that's a really good question. I think I can't give you the exact right answer. Um, I know that the organism is highly adapted to these incredible conditions, right? So it prefers pH 0 0.5 to pH 2. It prefers Ooh. 42 degrees up to 56 degrees. Um, but that being said, if you leave it at room temperature, it doesn't die. So it's not okay. exclusive to those environments. You can also adapt it to grow at more neutral pHs. So hmm. okay. I would say that it's adapted and it prefers, but it's not obligate to. But if you try and shock it into that new environment too quickly, it will die for sure. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's it's um, it, it would have to evolve to tolerate those 
conditions. So it, it possibly could be classified as an extremophile because if you just stick it straight in that environment of like a normal human environment, it would probably die. But anyways, I was just curious. So Um, we always call it a poly extremophile because it not only likes one extreme condition, it's actually two. mm, It's hot mm -hmm. and acidic. Which is, yep. you know, the worst combo for uh, humans. <laughs> yeah. Sounds horrible. <laughs> yeah. But it's normal to them. So I think that's so amazing. I just love thinking about that. That to us, it's awful. And then to them, that's like they can't imagine it another way. As um, That's how Dr. Kish talked about it. Absolutely. Um, so if your readers are interested, we have two preprints out in the last two months. Uh, one where we show that we can adapt that organism to grow in seawater as well. So acidified mm-hmm. seawater. And another we just released today as a preprint where we show that we can make a special red pigment in that cell. So we used uh, enzymes from a green alga. And the funny thing about that story is that it's a red alga that looks green, which we mentioned, and produces a blue pigment. But we turned it red using green algal genes. So it's a fun sort of sentence to say out loud a bunch of times, and it's a, a really fun story. So uh, I'll share the links that your readers can or your listeners can look to those Perfect. two stories. Yeah. yeah, there are definitely people listening that will want to go deeper on these things. Um, okay, so I want to go back to the Lego building blocks because <laughs> um, you can have these pathways where you put them into the algae and um, that brings us to the idea of that they are called cell factories. So um, do you know like what made people originally think that they could use algae in biotechnology? And then also, like if someone doesn't know what biotechnology is, can you kind of give a short explanation of that? Yeah, absolutely. Biotechnology exists in one way or another for a long time in human history. And I mean, if you really drill down to its definition, you're talking about using biology for a human value right? So we normally differentiate like traditional agriculture from biotechnology, but depending on how broad you want to define it, it's kind of like saying that all agriculture is also biotechnology. But for the purposes of practicality, let's say biotechnology is using um, organisms in a non-native context to produce a value for humans. And usually when we talk about biotechnology, we're talking about engineered organisms. So things that have had some kind of genetic engineering done to them. However, there's a lot of fermentation for natural products that one could call biotechnology because of the amount of investment in infrastructure and big tanks and uh, ways of cultivating them that one could also define as well. So metabolic engineering, which uh, we mentioned this Lego building blocks has been done in organisms like bacteria and yeast for a much longer time than they've been done in algae. And that's because bacteria and yeast genetically have been easier to work with. But also when you eat sugar for energy, instead of using light for energy, it's easier to pack a lot more cells into a volume. And so Mm -hmm. that kind of application is now only emerging because we've advanced in our ability to engineer the algal cells. And we're starting to get a little more clever with how we cultivate them. 
So the idea of using a cell factory goes back to this idea of biotechnology. We want to use something that we can contain and something that we can control and something that we can program to do something for us. And with bacteria and yeast, the idea is that you can engineer the cell and the cell needs a carbon source or an energy source to grow. And it usually uses sugar. So you can engineer a yeast or a bacterium to produce something of value, whether it's a medicine or a chemical, whatever it's going to be. And you feed it sugar and you get that product out. So it's like a factory. You have raw goods coming in, something happens inside the factory and you have a product coming out. And that's the idea of the cell factory. So the application of this concept to algae has come with the ability to engineer algae to do things that they don't normally do. And when we talk about doing biotechnology with algae, in general, what we're really talking about is converting free um, waste resources. And the buzz term that we're using at the moment is called re circular resource biotechnology. And the idea is that algae, because they grow on nitrogen and phosphorus, which are usually found in wastewaters, so the wastewaters that you would give off from an industrial process or after your home wastewater is then processed at a wastewater treatment facility, there are waters that come from that process that are full of nitrogen and phosphorus. And that cannot go into the ocean or into a, a water body because you get algal blooms. And you get algal blooms because they're really good at growing on waste nitrogen and phosphorus. So the idea is in a way to make sort of a controlled algal bloom using freely available waste inputs from wastewaters. And in addition, using waste gases in the form of carbon dioxide. So that combination of carbon dioxide and nitrogen and phosphorus can then be used to capture things that we're otherwise giving to the environment and turn them into essentially a free product. Now, there's a lot of technology and a lot of investment that's required in the cultivation infrastructure needed to grow algae, but that's the concept in general. So using a light-driven green cell factory or our new red alga light-driven red cell factory to produce products from waste inputs. Oh, I love this even more now, learning that little piece about the using wastewater. Um, is that something, is that kind of the typical way to grow them? Or is that just like a brand new um, way of doing this? I would say it's actually the oldest way of doing it, but it's only <laughs> recently becoming smart again. So okay. there's been a lot of push in the last 30 years for algal technologies for algal technology's sake. And there's been a lot of investment in um, the concept of using algae to make biofuels or algae to do mm. X, Y, Z, right? Um, mm. And the point to that is that algae grow really fast. They grow in contained conditions and we can make a lot of biomass in uh, a relatively small amount of time compared to traditional farming. But the problem is to do that, you actually have to apply fertilizers to the culture. You have to give them nitrogen and phosphorus. And so the economics have never worked properly to put all of those inputs in to grow a bunch of algal biomass to then make a product just because you're making it with algae. Where I think algal technologies really fit 
is when there's an entity that's already in existence or producing something else, and they're producing a waste stream of some sort to then convert that waste stream into a valuable product through algae Hmm. in a sustainable manner. And so this is the kind of uh, angle that we we look at it from our perspective. And to that point, we also have another um, preprint out that's in review in Metabolic Engineering Communications, which is a journal that you know scientists read and publish in about this topic, um, where we engineered our chlamydomonas cell to not only produce this red pigment that I spoke about, but also to produce a volatile chemical called isoprene. And so that one cell is, or that one strain is able to grow, take nutrients out of wastewater, emit clean water at the process end. You get an algal biomass that has a free pigment in it that's a value plus the protein that's in the biomass. And in the gas that's coming off of the culture, you're producing this chemical called isoprene. Now, isoprene is important because it's the chemical that's polymerized to make tires, rubber tires. So all of a sudden now, if you have waste stream at some kind of factory, you can have some algal bioreactors there producing all of these other products from resources that you would have to pay to be cleaned up by a wastewater treatment facility. (laughs) That's so cool. I love that. So it sounds like using these wastewaters is a way to eliminate the need for fertilizers. And if there can be these um, partnerships with companies or, um, you know, somebody who's creating this wastewater or cities or whatever, then we would be able to, um, if there these partnerships could start up and then it would eliminate the need for fertilizer, but then also lead to all these other neat things that can come off from it. It's it's really about capturing wasted value, right? I think mm-hmm. um, maybe you've heard this term before, but we all exist in a linear economy right now where we're extracting, we're using, and we're throwing away. And the goal is to say, well, what's the end life of that process? Can we, can we, have the end product of one process be a chemical input for another process and algae find their value really at that point and Mm. that's what's most exciting about it for me it's about bioresource circularity and the push towards more sustainable circular economies yeah i love that that using algae is really going to help the world with sustainability um so what are some like specific examples of these types of applications well um, besides the isoprene one because that one was really cool <laughs> for making tires <laughs> um we we also have a strain that produces a perfume product and so the perfume is patchouli alcohol or patchoulol is the chemical name um so that one that was one of the first ones that we ever were able to show we could do um you would know it if uh in, in North America, it was really popular in the 1960s, 1970s um, with sort of the hippie movement, but it's becoming a new additive again in perfume. So I guarantee oh, yeah. you if and you... If it's like an incense as well, those little sticks that you can burn <laughs> patchouli. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Now, that, that's a fun one because it's very interactive. People, when they come to the lab, they can smell the algae and it actually smells like the <laughs> perfume. And um, it's, so cool. it's really, it's fun because, you know, everyone is so... Um, 
we're so stimulated by by smells and it it triggers so many emotions and memories for us mm. so people love that um but that one is a really fun one because we showed that we could take our highly engineered cell and we could grow it in sort of this post treatment wastewater that was produced by uh, a reactor at our university where they had taken sort of human mun municipal water and then treated it. And then the treatment process released uh, water that had no carbon in it, but only nitrogen and phosphorus left over. And we were able to show that we could grow our algae in that water without any sterilization steps. And we could also get this perfume product out in addition to making the algal biomass. And so that kind I mean, it's a really funny story because we literally took toilet water and turned it into perfume. So we always joke that it was <laughs> a different eau de toilette, right? And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's so funny. <laughs> I, I think that. that's, a, that's a very specific example. But um, there's a lot of places in the world that you don't think about that produce a lot of uh, wastewater that has to be treated. So you eat olive oil and the last step of olive oil processing when they're making it is actually to mix the oil with water to remove a lot of the bitter flavors that come from the original olives. And that produces mm. thousands of liters or gallons of this water that's full of phenolics, right? And so what we're trying to show is that we can grow our extreme algae in these high phenolic containing waters, have them clean up that water instead of having to pay to then take it and chemically process it away. This is one of the key smaller examples of where you can work within a bioresource economy with farmers to help them clean up those, um, mm. those, those resources that they're actually now not, not giving away. They're actually having to pay to be taken away as a waste product that is then treated by chemical treatment. And so if we can have more uh, decentralized small-scale algal production facilities that can be in these places where wastewater is generated, we can create value for those entities that are that are using uh, that are producing these wastewaters and otherwise losing that value that they they should be able to capture. So how far off are we with all of this. Um, how much is theoretical and are we using, what are we using algae for today? Well, you know, if you don't clean your pool, you get algae in it. So it's not actually that hard to get it to grow. What is challenging is to get it to grow well and then to clean it up afterwards and turn it into a product. Um, with any microbial cell that's in a water body, getting the water away from the cell or the cell away from the water and into a dry powder form so it can be used as a product is actually one of the more costly parts of the whole process. So mm. we need, there, there's sort of a gap right now between uh, what is practical and what exists. So what exists right now are nice commercially available infrastructures where you can install um uh, acres and acres of these tubes that you can grow liquid algae in. You can have one giant processing unit where you can then separate the water from the algae in a high throughput manner, make a paste, and then you can spray dry it and turn it into a powder, sort of like the yeast you would buy if you were going to the supermarket and buying bread yeast, right? Um, that, that would mm -hmm. be how algae would look 
if it was processed into a product. What we're missing is sort of this medium scale decentralized modular units where one could show up with, um, you know, like a shipping container sized uh, facility, drop it at a farm and start using algal technologies there on the ground while it's needed. Um, I'm not sure if there's a big enough market yet or a big enough awareness to engineer these kind of things. But I know that some researchers like our colleagues in Sydney are thinking about this and we are thinking about how we can apply the modularity that's applied for wastewater treatment to also algal cultivation technology. So I think we're still in early stages of its implementation in the way I've discussed. There's a lot of technology development out there for um, growing algae. There's a lot of innovation in that space. There's a lot of great people working in that space to grow algae en masse. Um, and yeah, uh, to take a step back, one of the other things that we're missing is the translation of the engineering work we're doing in the lab and the new phenotypes that we are producing, these new types of cells that are producing multiple products. The, the bioreactors or the way of growing them industrially right now is just to make biomass, but they're not optimized to get out a co-product at the same time or make three or four products at the same time. And so that's a space that still needs quite a lot of investment of person power and time and you know ideation to really um, try things out. In. And so we try and do that in our lab here as well. Hmm. That's... I mean, it's definitely neat to think that this could happen in the future and um, it'll be really exciting to see where it goes. Um, I want to go back to your story now. <laughs> Do you remember what it was like the first time you saw algae under the microscope? And I bring this up because a lot of people in my audience come to Joyful Microbe initially because they get interested in microscopy, they get a home microscope, and then they look at algae and um, because it's one of those, obviously you said it's it's just about everywhere. It's pretty common. You can find it and it's fun to look at. So do you, can you tell us a little bit about what that was like for you when you first saw algae? I think the first time I saw an alga under the microscope, I was really frustrated. And I was frustrated <laughs> because it didn't stop moving. And it was moving <laughs> around and it was really hard to see. And it was only when uh, the postdoc who was supervising me at the time said, oh, you have to put a little iodine on it. And when you put iodine on it, it stops swimming. Um, and then it was really fascinating. You're looking at the single cell that has so much potential. It can do so much. And it's just there staring at you, right? And it has different structures. It has like a little eye spot that's kind of cute. It's <laughs> It's got all of these um, flagella and intricacies in, it, in its biology and you're staring at it and you're thinking this looks alien this looks so <laughs> different right um but then that's one alga and then you look at another alga and it has a completely different cell structure so mm. i i really like to uh we i'm very excited we just got a new microscope in our lab and it's very high resolution and we're taking some really nice photos of the algae that we're isolating here so hopefully we'll be able to share those soon um, but you know, to your listeners, um, it would be really cool if you spend some time taking samples of water that you find around maybe your backyard or even a 
flower pot on your balcony or anywhere really and seeing what kind of algae you can see in there. They may not all be green, but they will all probably have some kind of plastid, so some kind of colored organelle that you can actually see in a white light microscope if you're looking with your eyes. So um, one of the things we like to do with our students is have them sketch uh, these structures because you can see just how vastly different these photosynthetic cells are. Hmm. So is there... Are plastids a good way to figure out whether you're looking at algae or some other organism? Like, what would you suggest for, you know, because if you're taking a sample somewhere in nature, you're going to end up with lots of organisms, most likely. And so how will they be able to differentiate between the algae versus other types of microbes, just looking at them under the microscope? That's a really good question. I think that Having looking for that plastid is definitely a good place to start. Um, so you're looking for sort of a, a blob or an amorphous thing that looks like a kidney bean or maybe a different shape that is green in some way. It could be yellowish, it could be brownish, but it should be a very prominent part of the cell. Now, what you'll probably see is that there are a lot of different things that may have one or two or even multiple of these um, plastids in them. So it's not limited to, oh, there's one cell, it's circular, it has one plastid. It could be one big cell that's massive that has five plastids in it, like the hmm. euglenoids. So there's a lot of different um, phenotypes out there. But what you're really looking for are uh, green color or yellow color or sometimes even brown color. And then, hmm. um, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's really hard to say what's the rule for differentiating an alga <laughs> under a microscope. Um, if something doesn't have an internal structure that looks colored in some way, then it's probably not uh, traditional alga as we would define it. That's probably a good way of thinking about it. Cool. That's a good rule of thumb then. I like that. Um, you mentioned iodine to make them stop swimming. Is that something you can do with other organisms? Because um, like paramecium, they fly around <laughs> um, under the microscope and sometimes it's would be nice for them to slow down. Um, is that something generally you can use? Uh, I have to admit, I'm not a classically trained phycologist or microscopist, so I don't know, but that's something I'd love to know if you try it and find out. Okay. Yeah. I'll look into that. Um, I think one of so, the, one of the fun things, sorry. Um, one of the fun things that I've seen is uh, we have a cat feeder out our back uh, door and it's, you know, one of these automatic, dropping water feeders where as the water comes out, more water goes in and it has sort of a constant fill rate. And every three days or so I have to go out there and I have to change the water and I have to clean it because different photosynthetic organisms tend to start occupying that stagnant water. But every mm. time I do it, it seems to be a different group of organisms. So huh. it, it's not the same algae that keeps coming back. It's really quite diverse. And so there's some kind of competition. There's some kind of opportunism. And I think that if your listeners wanted to do a fun thing, they could track over the course of a season, if they left a cup of water mm. out or something, uh, what kind of organisms they found opportunistically occupying it. And if they had just a very small amount of dirt or some kind of um, thing that might have a little bit of nutrients in it, that might help promote that process as well. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting that you see different organisms each time you look at it. 
Um, well, this has been really fun. So I'm going to just ask you a few questions that I always ask everybody that comes on the podcast. Um, so what have you learned overall from your work that has changed how you think about microbes in your daily life? You know, I think what I've learned through working with microbes has impacted my ability to understand commonality in biology in non-microbes. And so um, working with this, the modularity of metabolic engineering has been eye-opening to think about how common shared things are in biology. So uh, for example, the uh, pink color of flamingos or the orange color of carrots or the red of tomatoes all come from the same pathway, the carotenoid pathway. And it's just subtle differences in chemistry that make those vastly different colors. And when you start looking around, you can see all of these different things in the world around you that it gives you a greater appreciation for how everything works. So I like to use uh, the microbes as sort of um, a jumping off point for biology. They're a way that we can understand things in a more simple way but they have implications at the macro scale. Hmm. That's really neat. Okay. And you talked a little bit about, you know, looking at algae under the microscope, but I think you, you prepared an activity for my listeners. So um, can you tell us a little bit about, like give us a little bit more of an in-depth um, explanation of what at-home microbiology activity they can do? so that they can experience the microbial world in a hands-on way? So um, much like I was talking about with my cat feeder, I think it would be a really fun activity over the course of several months whenever you have non-frozen temperatures wherever you are to have sort of a small standing body of water outside that you check on regularly and take samples from and then do your at-home microscopy on it and really sketch out what you're seeing. So um, you'll be amazed at the differences in phenotypes of these organisms and how different their structures can be even at a microscopic level. So if any of you actually do make any of these sketches, uh, I'd be really happy if you uh, went on Twitter and started uh, tagging uh, Justine and myself so that we could actually see them because I'm sure you're fantastic artists as well as uh, microscopists. And it's a great way to train your hand-eye coordination as well as investigate the microbial world around you. I love that. Yeah. I haven't tried sketching anything that I've seen under the microscope, but <laughs> I feel like I would need lessons. <laughs> I probably just need to practice, but yeah, I think that's a great idea. Um, I love that. Thanks for sharing that. And um, you mentioned some preprints that you have, and so I definitely want to get the links to those, but do you have any other resources books, websites, articles on this topic that you'd like to recommend so my listeners can go deeper on this topic? So all of our lab publications you can find on Google Scholar uh, if you just search my name. So that's a very easy way to do it. I'm very active on Twitter, so you can hear my regular comings and goings in the science world there. Uh, we also have a lab website, which you can check out some of our projects and the people working with us and what we're doing here. I'm uh, on a side note, uh, totally excited about this book called Seaweeds of the World, A Guide to Every Order by John H. Bothwell, which just mm. came out in Princeton Press. And I've promoted it a lot on Twitter because I really like it. It's super didactic. It goes through 
some of the history of what algae are and uh, the differences between green, red, brown algae in a very nice, um, both nice way to read, but also visually appealing way. It's a very well illustrated book. So I highly recommend checking that out. Um, and yeah, if you have any questions, of course, email and Twitter are the best ways to reach me. Cool. So is that book um, going to cover microalgae as well? The evolution of macroalgae is the same as microalgae in general between the green, reds, and the browns. And it covers all of that in the first chapter. Yeah. Awesome. Amazing. Okay. So we'll definitely link to those. Um, thank you so much for all this great information. Now, um, you mentioned you're on Twitter. So where can everyone find, follow, and connect with you? So it's at Kyle Lowerson on Twitter. It's uh, just my first and last name, all one word. And then our website, I think you'll post a link to in your mm-hmm. um uh, subrunner. So yeah, that's it. Great. Well, thank you so much. This has been really fun. I appreciate your time and sharing all this great information about algae with us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the joyful microbe podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you'd like to help others who love microbes to find the podcast, then please leave a rating and a review for the show and tell a friend. To learn more about the Joyful Microbe, head on over to joyfulmicrobe.com where you will find the show notes and all the links and resources mentioned. If you love Joyful Microbe and would like to support the show, you can do so by leaving a virtual tip through coffee. The link is in the show notes and on joyfulmicrobe.com at the bottom of the page. Thanks again, microbe friends. Talk to you next time.